I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A warning, this episode contains language and depictions of violence that may be disturbing to some listeners. How often do you think about the uprising and or your trial? I really matter thinking about it. I'm living it out, living out the repercussions of those things. Keith Lamar has been on death row since 1995, almost all of it spent in solitary confinement. Keith says he's innocent and may be executed by the state of Ohio because prosecutors withheld evidence which deprived him of getting a fair trial. I think they just didn't want to take any chances. So they came up with this kind of scheme to effectively deny me exculpatory evidence. The prosecutor's job is not to win a guilty verdict, but to see that justice is done. But we know that it's not how the system works. I'm Leah Rothman. This is The Real Killer. Episode 7, A Caricature, A Travesty, and Obscenity. I think discovery is probably the most important issue in Keith's trial. I think that is where the case really went off the rails. That's Alice Lind. She and her husband, Stoughton, are widely respected civil rights and labor activists, authors, and lawyers. They've spent roughly 20 years focusing on the Lucasville uprising and the cases of the five men currently sitting on death row. Much of their research went into Stoughton's book, Lucasville, The Untold Story of a Prison Uprising. Back when I first started working on Keith's story, I visited with Alice and Stoughton, who were in their early 90s. They declined to be interviewed for this podcast, but have been helpful behind the scenes. Sadly, Stoughton passed away in November of 2022. Although our time together was brief, I feel lucky to have spent any time with them at all. 
Back in 2015, Stoughton and Alice are interviewed for Barbara Wolf's documentary, Condemned. And Ms. Wolf has been kind enough to share her footage with me. In it, Alice and Stoughton talk about Keith's case, the issues with discovery, and what they believe are clear Brady violations. Take Stacy Gordon. He was one of the five prisoner witnesses who testified for the state, saying he saw Keith lead a death squad through L6. Stoughton says there's a valuable piece of the Stacy Gordon puzzle that was left out. And had it been turned over, it could have changed the outcome in Keith's trial. Stacy Gordon was one of two key witnesses against Lamar. This man was probably the most significant prosecution witness. He lied through his teeth. In fact, I think Stacy Gordon was probably the individual who actually coordinated the death squad. But setting that aside, less than a year before Keith's trial, the prosecution which had indicted Mr. Gordon for a surprising number of violent actions during the 11 days dropped the more serious of those charges and entered into a plea agreement. And at that particular time and place, the uh, prosecutor elected to ask Mr. Gordon a few additional questions and have them transcribed by a court reporter. Why he did this, I don't know, but my wife and I discovered this paper in reviewing uh, multitudinous documents about the case. The prosecutor asked uh, Mr. Gordon on that occasion, do you know Keith Lamar? Answer, no. Question, did you see Keith Lamar in the L6 block in the early hours of the riot at Lucasville? No. Well, this is what Brady understands as impeaching evidence. That is to say, if a given witness makes a statement on the witness stand and the defense lawyer is able to say, in this case, now, Mr. Gordon, you just said, uh, I believe that you didn't see Mr. Lamar. I am. Take a look at it. I am reading that correctly, am I not? And Gordon has to say, yes. And the defense counsel then says, well, what should we then make of your testimony, your elaborate, detailed testimony about what you saw Mr. Lamar do on April 11th? I mean, that could have changed the outcome of the trial. There would have been both exculpatory and impeaching evidence concerning Mr. Gordon had the prosecution done what Brady demands. So to reiterate, on the stand, Stacy Gordon testifies Keith led the group of men cell to cell killing the alleged snitches. But in an interview with prosecutors, Stacy Gordon says he didn't know Keith, nor did he see him in L6 during the early hours of the uprising. And Stoughton says, had that interview been turned over to Keith's attorneys in 1995, it could have made a difference. Another example. On the eve of trial, the prosecution asked the highway patrol to interview a particular witness because 
the prosecution thought he might be called as a defense witness. In other words, they thought he might know something harmful to them. The highway patrolman conducted the, the interview. This is less than a week before trial. And he reported to Attorney Teeger, to the prosecutor, he doesn't want to be involved, but if he's called, he'll say that he didn't see Lamar do anything. Now, talk about exculpatory information. What a yummy for the defense counsel to have had at trial a week later. The prosecution did nothing to make that information available to the defense. So this was a caricature, a travesty, an obscenity. I, I lack words to describe what an insult, not just to the defendant and defendant's counsel. This is not what Brady versus Maryland intended. I wonder, did Ohio have some kind of loophole to Brady back in the day? I mean, Brady was and is a U.S. Supreme Court case that should apply to everyone, including those in Ohio. But maybe there's something I'm missing. I asked Bob Toy, one of Keith's 1995 trial attorneys, about it. The discovery practice back in the 90s was really outrageous. And I know that because I was involved in it from 78 to 92 as a prosecutor. You basically try your case without providing the defense much evidence at all, just the bare basics. Right now, we have open discovery, which the way the case would be tried today would be nothing like it was tried in the 90s. As far as I'm concerned, uh, if somebody were to look at it today, they'd throw this out and say this was not a fair process because it wasn't a fair process. Back to Stacy Gordon. It seems he's no longer incarcerated, at least in Ohio. I've tried to track him down, but haven't had any luck. Keith says, besides Stacy Gordon's statement, there are many other examples of exculpatory evidence withheld from him at trial, like an actual confession made by a man named Aaron Jefferson. I have the transcript of his confession. In it, Aaron Jefferson describes in great detail how he killed Daryl DePina, one of the alleged snitches, in L6. Aaron Jefferson apparently came forward a year or so after the riot and confessed to killing Daryl DePina, uh, someone whom I was ultimately um, sentenced to death for killing. I wasn't uh, 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 given his statement prior to trial. Another inmate named Hackett allegedly saw Aaron Jefferson kill a white inmate in L6. And so this, it, wasn't, it wasn't only that Aaron Jefferson confessed, it was also that they withheld statements from people who witnessed, corroborated that confession. You know, and so while the prosecution might say uh, where Aaron Jefferson's recollections is, are faulty, he was wrong about, you know, his, you know, his involvement, you know, it's, uh, it's hard to then say that or make that claim when you have uh, independent uh, witnesses corroborating you know, the confession. How can that not make a difference? If the system itself is legit, how can that not make a difference? 
According to the transcript from Keith's arraignment hearing, defense attorneys ask prosecutors to turn over any statements where people like Aaron Jefferson confessed to or were accused of hitting or harming any of the victims Keith was on trial for killing. Judge Fred Crow grants the defense's request. Prosecutor Seth Teeger says he will comply the best he can. Then, Judge Crow tells the prosecutor that he doesn't have to go through every document, but he should comply to the fullest extent possible in good faith with the court's order. Again, I have Aaron Jefferson's full confession now. But were the full statements and interviews with Aaron Jefferson and the others ever turned over back then? I don't know. Maybe they were. I just haven't seen any documentation that confirms they were. Regardless, the state says Aaron Jefferson's confession is not credible. So I just want to make sure that I'm clear because in in reading everything that I'm reading and and trying to wrap my head around all of it still, even this many months in, it's not easy to say when you started to receive some exculpatory evidence or discovery that could have helped you, that wasn't turned over at trial. Are you able to say, I got this on this day, I got this on this day? No, because they came, you know, to, you know, um, random sources at different times. It happened like piecemeal over, you know, two decades. But Keith says some came in via the other four on death row. Remember, after Keith's 2007 evidentiary hearing, the attorneys for the four other filed motions and were granted access to evidence they hadn't been given before. Well, supposedly, if while going through the evidence, they saw something that pertained to Keith, they would share it with him. But Keith says it's not how he got any of this potentially favorable evidence that's important. It's what he got that matters. With access to all the evidence that I've been able to obtain over the years, I think that it would be hard for a jury, a, 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 a jury of my peers, to uh, convict me of these crimes, yeah. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just 
disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. You always have in the system plausible deniability. I continue my conversation with Keith about his case and the criminal justice system he says failed him. It wasn't until later that I was able to really, you know, fully kind of appreciate what was done to me. And I started telling people, like, listen, this is what this guy, Mark Peepmeyer, did. Mark Peepmeyer. Remember, he was the special prosecutor appointed to oversee the Lucasville cases. In a deposition for Keith's evidentiary hearing, Mark Peepmeyer testified that he applied a, quote, narrow Brady standard to the Lucasville cases. Keith says, based on Pete Meyer's own admission, that proves evidence was withheld at his trial. He also says you don't have to look far to find someone else he did it to. My name is Derek Wayne Jameson. I'm the 119th death row exoneree in the United States. I did 20 years on Ohio's death row. In August of 1984, bartender Gary Mitchell is beaten to death when two men rob the Central Bar in Cincinnati, Ohio. A few months later, a man named Charles Howell is arrested for the murder. Howell confesses and names Derek Jameson as the main killer. Howell agrees to testify against Derek in exchange for a lighter sentence, which turns out to be 10 years in prison. Despite having at least five alibis at the time of the murder, in October of 1985, Derek Jameson is found guilty and sentenced to death. I speak with Derek via Zoom from a hotel room in Tampa, Florida, where he now lives. 
The first day I arrived on Ohio death row was one of the worst days of my life. You know, could you imagine being innocent, not knowing nothing about this case, and they sentenced you to die? And I arrived at the uh, maximum security prison called Lucasville, and they marched me down down this long corridor. The guard said, "The new guy here," and he said, "Dead man walking." I went in cell twenty-seven. And I was in cell 27 for 14 years. This path of nightmare is hell. It's hell. You in living hell. It's worse, worse than a nightmare because you can wake up from a nightmare. You can't wake up from a living hell, you know? Did you have an execution date set? I had six days of execution. Six days. Can you imagine that? And then I was sent to die. So you really had like seven execution dates. Let that sink in. Derek is scheduled to be executed seven times, each time receiving a stay from the governor, the last time coming with only 90 minutes to spare. I'm trying to understand how psychologically devastating it is to come so close to being executed. I mean, what does that do to a person? What does that do to you? To get so it, close it, to being it, it, if 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 you ain't careful to destroy you, you know, cause I saw it destroy a lot of my friends, you know. Like I saw people live on death row, lose their mind right in front of me, you know. It was real anguish and pain. I mean, it wasn't nothing I could do either, you know. It wasn't it wasn't nothing I could do about it. All I could do was suffer and pray. In time, a new attorney uncovers exculpatory evidence that had been withheld from Derek's defense team, evidence that contradicted Charles Howell's story. He told uh, lawyers about him that he lied. He told them he did. They had three different statements for Charles, Mr. Howell. One, one statement, two statements is a lie, three statements is, a, is a, really a damn lie, you know, but they got they found all this out after I'd been convicted. He gave the police like three different statements. You know what I'm saying? And I went in the court, I went in a courtroom with the most powerful prosecutor in the state of Ohio, Mark Primeyer. He one of the most powerful prosecutors, but he made mistakes. Even the best to ever do it made mistakes. I had told Derek one of the reasons I wanted to talk with him is because of Mark Pete Meyer's connection to his case. They found out, new discovered evidence that they withheld 35 pieces of evidence. You only need one new piece of evidence to get a new trial. They withheld 35 pieces. In May of 2000, Derek's attorneys file a petition for a writ of habeas corpus. The court grants the writ and orders a new trial based on the evidence withheld back at his original trial. Five years later, on October 25th, 2005, after the state decides not to retry him, Derek walks out of prison a free man. During Derek's time on death row, he lost several of his family members and watched as 17 of his friends were executed. I lost so much. I lost two of my cousins, my niece, my mom, my dad, friends, pit pals, and all my friends that I grew up with on death row. 20 years, two decades. 
it was just unusual circumstances or poor, being poor. But a lot of people, you know, was guilty, but a lot of people was innocent too. Like Keith Lamar, he innocent. Him and the guys that was uh, the Lucasville Five, all of them should be free, you know? But one thing about the, the state, the prosecutors, they can't never admit that they wrong. You'd never see a prosecutor admit that they did wrong in a death penalty case. What would have happened if your lawyers had not uncovered those 35 pieces of evidence that had been withheld? I'd be in the cemetery right now. I'd be dead. Yeah, I'd be dead. So how did this happen? According to court documents, back in the mid-'80s, Instead of Cincinnati PD turning over the whole case file to the Hamilton County Prosecutor's Office, they would routinely select certain pieces of information and evidence that they deemed to be relevant and put it in something called a, quote, homicide book. And that was handed over to prosecutors. In a 1999 hearing, Mark Pete Meyer testifies that at the time of Derek's trial, he relied on that homicide book when answering the defense's demands for discovery. He said that he would have turned over any Brady material had he known it existed. Mr. Pete Meyer and another prosecutor also stated that they received no training from the Hamilton County Prosecutor's Office as to what constituted exculpatory evidence. So... Basically, it seems that the police cherry-picked what was handed over to the prosecutors, and the prosecutors didn't ask any questions. And that led to an innocent man, Derek Jameson, being wrongfully convicted and almost executed. Describe the moment that you walked out of prison a free man. Oh, man. Live. You remember, you remember, I know you remember this. This go bright up your day. You remember the day before Christmas when you was a kid. So they tell you to go to bed and you be laying there. You can't go to sleep because you're too excited. You remember that feeling, that exciting feeling. That's what it felt like. It, it was the most beautiful thing in the world, you know. Free, I walked about it there. 20 years, the same day, the same day I walked in there, I walked out. And what did they give you as a parting gift? $75 That's all I ever received from the state of Ohio was 75 bucks after 20 years. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for what happened to you. Thank you, sweetheart. Thank you. For the last several years, Derek has been working with the nonprofit Witness to Innocence, an organization led by death row exonerees focused on supporting each other and their families, shining a light on wrongful convictions, and abolishing the death penalty. I get to reach out to people like you, you know, because, you know, in America, we need right now, we need all we need is love and compassion. Believe it or not, Leah, all human beings are sacred, you know? So we need as much love as possible. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, 
The Apollo Jim murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Keith and I continue our conversation about his experiences with the criminal justice system, specifically the prosecutors, none of whom have yet agreed to speak with me. By the way, this is another one of those times when Keith's audio isn't great. But because Keith is particularly passionate during this conversation, I decide to include it. And let me just be very clear that I am absolutely trying to talk with Seth Teeger, Anderson, Pete Meyer, um, 
so far, I've only heard back from Tiger, who has declined to talk with me, but I'm not done trying. But that's the thing. They don't have to respond. They don't have to say anything. They don't owe you an explanation. You don't have to talk to Mark Peekmeyer. Look at his record withholding evidence. This is his M.O. This is how he got to be where he's at right now. You know, he didn't get there by playing by the rules. Because I'm saying, I'm we're being fair, we're talking about the balanced thing. My record is all open for interrogation. You're asking me all these difficult questions. I don't mind answering them, but they're not going to talk to you. They don't owe you no estimation. They're not fighting for their life. What I'm trying to do, in addition to fighting for my life, I'm trying to say that I am not that person. That's not me. But you're reading the records, you're reading the files about my case, about my history. You're talking to my family, people who knew me when I was nine years old, 10 years old, so on and so forth. And I don't mind you doing that. No, ask them to do that because I wanted you to have a full, you know, access. But it would be, you know, uh, 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 not, it won't be for the balanced story if you don't do the same thing with, with them. You know what I mean? I'm not talking about some angels, people with stellar reputations, people who have reputations of, you know, playing everything by the book. These people are crooked. And that needs to be a part of the story as well. And I think, you know, for it to be justice, if that's what you're trying to do with your story, with your podcast, you know, talking about the real killer, you got to look at Mark Creekmar and his record. You don't have to say anything. His records speak for him, just like my records speak for me. You know, the shit I got to answer to, you know. So far, I haven't found a bunch of other examples of stories like Derek Jameson's, and I'm looking. But you don't need a hundred examples. That one example was enough. I mean, that's enough. What they did to him, just one person. Keith says that withholding evidence is Mark Peetmeyer's M.O. Then he says, I shouldn't need a ton of examples. Derek Jameson is enough. It's a contradiction, sure. But I understand his point. And Keith's right about this. What I'm trying to do with this podcast is tell a balanced story. And that means not only looking at Keith, but looking at the prosecutors and the system that's about to execute him. But there's other examples of him doing to other people what he did to me, and I just read about it. I mean, you know, it's, it's an article in the Daily Beast about the practices of the prosecutors, not just here in Ohio, but across this country. This is what, it's not just even about my people. We're talking about a system, the criminal justice system. There's no accountability for a prosecutor. There's no accountability. Mark Peekmeyer, what did he do to Derek Jameson? He withheld exculpatory evidence that resulted in Derek Jameson being sent to death row. Keith says he first learned about Derek in his case while researching Mark Peepmeyer's role in his own. He and Derek have spoken a few times since Derek was exonerated. Derek Jameson, after all of that time, came home. They didn't even compensate him. They didn't give him any money. They didn't apologize. Nothing. And right now he's living in shambles. He's living, in, you know, all to the, the, the goodwill and kindness of strangers. And the shit is that. That's, that's what I mean about this. This is, you know, this is slanted. These people are just let off the hook over and over and over. But since Keith and I had that conversation, my research turned up another death row case connected to Mark Peepmeyer. Jeffrey Wogenstall. He's been on death row for 29 years and is currently housed at Chillicothe Correctional Institution. And like Derek Jameson, he's had several stays of execution. Back in 1993, Jeffrey Wogenstall is convicted of killing 10-year-old Amber Garrett. 
she had been abducted, stabbed, and beaten to death. Kim Rigby, one of Wogenstall's attorneys from the Office of the Ohio Public Defender, agrees to speak with me about his case. My client, Jeffrey Wogenstall, was wrongfully convicted based on a host of Brady violations that were committed at his trial. This tragic story begins back in 1991. So in the early morning of November 24th, 1991, um, 10-year-old at the time, Amber Garrett disappeared from the bedroom that she was in, which she shared with her two younger siblings. And this all took place in the small town of Harrison, Ohio, in Hamilton County. At the time of her disappearance, Amber's brother, who was 16, I believe at the time, Eric Horn, was supposed to be babysitting while her mother, Peggy Garrett, was out supposedly at various bars that evening. Before long, police have a suspect. Peggy and Eric pointed the finger at Jeffrey Wogenstall, who was an acquaintance of the Garretts at the time, and who had been out with Peggy at least for a period of time earlier that evening when Amber disappeared. The state's case against Jeff has Amber disappearing with Jeff around 3.30 a.m. But Kim says the time of Amber's disappearance is really based on what Eric and Peggy told police. Eric says he knew his sister was missing around 3 a.m., but didn't say anything about it to his mother. Peggy says she only figured out Amber was missing after she failed to return home from church that afternoon, and that's when she called police. Jeff had a prior burglary conviction, um, and so he was on parole. So when Peggy told the cops that Jeff was responsible for Amber's disappearance and they came knocking on his door, Jeff opened the door, he allowed them to search his house, and the cops at that point saw a marijuana pipe, and they detained him at that point for violating parole. Jeff says around 3 a.m., he went to the house to buy marijuana from Eric. Then Eric asked him to drive him to a house a couple of blocks away. Jeff says after dropping Eric off, he went home, where he was alone until police showed up that afternoon. Several days later, Amber's body is discovered in Bright, Indiana, about six miles from her home in Ohio. So what did the police have other than Peggy and Eric's pointing the finger at him? Over the time of the investigation, they accumulated a few other like circumstantial pieces of evidence. There were a few different witnesses who testified that they saw Jeff and or a car that looked like Jeff's either driving through Harrison towards what would be Jameson Road, where Amber's body was found, or that they saw him and or a car off the side of the road where Amber's body was later discovered. There was also an FBI expert (laughs) that was brought in who testified that a hair found on Amber's clothing matched Jeff. There was a minuscule spot of blood that was substantially smaller than a drop that was found on the door handle in the back seat of Jeff's car that could have matched Amber's DNA. There were also small stains in Jeff's apartment that looked like they could be blood. There was a jailhouse cinch that testified that Jeff confessed to him. 
And finally, there was plant material found on Jeff's jacket and shoes that was similar to the area where Amber's body was found. So Jeff was charged with the aggravated murder of Amber Garrett. He was also charged with kidnapping and burglary. Who tried the case for the state? The lead prosecutor was Joseph Dieters, and the two assistant prosecutors were Mark Peepmeyer and Rick Gibson. Jeffrey Wogenstall is eventually found guilty and sentenced to death. So he exhausted his state appeals and he headed into federal court. He's now in federal court, it's the early 2000s, and he finally gets something. Um, he was granted discovery in federal court, and he was specifically allowed to depose people about Eric Horn and Eric Horn's testimony because there was evidence that they had at the time that Eric had lied on the stand about never using or trafficking drugs. See, when Amber's brother Eric Horn testified at Jeffrey's trial, he stated that he had never done or sold drugs, which wasn't true he was an adjudicated delinquent for trafficking. And once the defense team realized that the federal court allowed additional discovery and depositions of Eric Horn, of the police officers involved from the Harrison Police Department, and also of the three prosecutors that were involved in trying Jeff's case. In one of those depositions, an officer who was the lead investigator in Jeff's case testified that after Eric Horn was arrested, he called prosecutor Joe Dieters to tell him he had just arrested one of their key witnesses. He also testified that he had other conversations with Mark Peetmeyer and or Rick Gibson as well about the fact that he had arrested Eric Horn. When Eric was put on the stand by Mark Peetmeyer, Mr. Peetmeyer allowed Eric to state more than once that he never did drugs and that he never trafficked drugs and objected multiple times to questions by the defense to that effect. The courts ultimately say Eric Horn's false testimony wouldn't have changed the outcome of Jeffrey's original trial. But some news from the Department of Justice may help his case. Remember, Kim mentioned the state's case against Jeffrey included an FBI expert who testified that the hair found on Amber's clothing matched Jeff. Well, back around 2015, the DOJ, the Innocence Project, and the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers conducted a joint investigation into microscopic hair comparison. The DOJ reviewed cases where the FBI tested or submitted reports using microscopic hair comparison, which is what they did in Jeff's case. And what they found was that before the year 2000, the FBI's testimony contained errors in at least 90% of the cases. The United States Department of Justice sent over a letter to Jeff's defense counsel to inform them that the microscopic hair comparison testimony at Jeff's trial was scientifically inaccurate. Around that same time, defense counsel, and this is when I entered the case, found that the prosecutors allowed the jailhouse snitch to also lie on the stand. The snitch testified that he did not receive consideration for testifying. However, in a sworn affidavit that he gave to defense counsel in 2013, he explained that he did, in fact, receive consideration. 
The courts once again say neither the DOJ's findings on the microscopic hair comparison nor the newly discovered evidence about the jailhouse snitch would have made a difference. In 2016, the public records law changed in Ohio. So defense counsel, including myself at the time, filed a public records request with the Harrison Police Department. They did not appear to want to release those records to us. Eventually, the appellate prosecutor for Hamilton County allows Kim and the team to copy the police file. And what they find is staggering. We found a treasure trove of police reports and tips that were previously unknown to the defense. (laughs) We found evidence that implicated Peggy Garrett. We found evidence that implicated Eric Horn. We found evidence that just undermined both Peggy and Eric's testimony. There were police reports that showed Peggy hit Amber in the head three times the night before she went missing. Peggy often had drug-fueled parties. There was a note in the police file that said that Amber had been raped by one of the men who had partied at her house. (laughs) Another note showed that police were contemplating charging Peggy with child endangerment. We found notes that said that Peggy got in deep into debt and sold Amber to a drug dealer. We found things that said someone saw Peggy at a Waffle House crying that she had really effed up because she'd sold Amber for $1,500. We also found a host of information that implicated Eric Horn in Amber's disappearance. We found information to show that he was actually a suspect. (laughs) There was also evidence that Eric took and failed a polygraph, and when confronted with that, he said, fuck you, fuck the machine, I'm out of here. We found things that also undercut the eyewitnesses more so than before. Kim and her team uncover more evidence that bring Jeffrey's conviction into question, like that speck of blood found in Jeffrey's car. Further testing was done on it, and although Amber could not be excluded, the state failed to test other possible sources like her mother Peggy, who was known to have been in the car on several occasions, including, allegedly the night Amber disappeared. And in regards to the blood found in Jeffrey's house, well, that turned out to not be of human origin. And there's more. Going back to Jeff's coat and shoes, the prosecution called a witness to testify that the thorns and other plant material found on the jacket and shoes were similar to the plant materials in the area where Amber's body was found. However, that plant material is similar to pretty much anywhere in the woods in the Midwest. So armed with all of this and even more new evidence they amassed, Kim and the team file a motion for a new trial. The vast majority of our claims are um, related to prosecutorial misconduct, specifically that they withheld Brady evidence at the time of Jeff's trial. And that had this information been given to defense counsel at the time of trial, it would have clearly made a difference in Jeff's case and in that he wouldn't have been convicted. So what are the similarities between Derek Jameson's case and Jeffrey Wogenstall's? Well, both were tried in Hamilton County, Both had Mark Pietmeyer as one of the prosecutors on their cases, and both had allegations of Brady violations, which seemed to stem from what was in the police files and not turned over. 
Remember the homicide book? Just from reading the record in Mr. Jameson's case, that Mr. Peepmeyer had testified in Derek's case about some of the practices in Hamilton County at the time, where the police would only turn over what they called a homicide book to the prosecutors before trial. The police would determine what would go in that homicide book. So if there was anything that was exculpatory or potentially exculpatory in the police file, but wasn't given to the prosecutors, the prosecutors at the time wouldn't be aware and couldn't turn it over. Obviously, we all know that that's not how Brady works. (laughs) What the police know is imputed to what the prosecution knows. And so regardless, if... Mr. Peepmeyer, Mr. Gibson knew what was in the Harrison police files. They should have been aware of that, and it should have been turned over. And, I mean, frankly, prosecutors should be seeking justice, not just convictions. I wonder, are these alleged Brady violations the only issue the Hamilton County Prosecutor's Office has been called out for? According to a Cincinnati Inquirer article back in September of 2000, the Ohio Supreme Court rebuked the Hamilton County Prosecutor's Office for making improper statements to jurors in 14 death penalty cases in the previous 12 years, statements which could have potentially overturned verdicts on appeal. Kim says the courts have also taken notice about how Jeff's case was handled. The first district, like Court of Appeals here in Ohio, had stated the prosecutor's conduct needs reviewed by other authorities. And that was when they were specifically referring to the information about them withholding from the defense Eric Horn's trafficking conviction. Is there any oversight? I mean, there is the state bar. (laughs) I mean, who oversees all attorneys? But effectively, no. For the record... I've found many articles praising the Hamilton County Prosecutor's Office and specifically Mark Peepmeyer. By many accounts, he's considered a well-liked, by-the-book prosecutor who has worked many high-profile cases in Ohio. And again, he hasn't answered my requests for an interview. For now, Kim, her team, and Jeff are in a holding pattern. So as it stands, no court has made a final determination on Jeff's case based on all of the evidence that we have now. Obviously, I would love if Jeff was exonerated. I am hoping and I'm more hopeful that he'll receive a new trial based on like our motion for new trial or our filings in both state and federal court. We've spent a lot of time in this episode talking about Mark Peepmeyer and two cases other than Keith's, handled by him and the Hamilton County Prosecutor's Office. Turns out there's an interesting development in one more. In December of 2022, Elwood Jones, who has been on death row for 27 years for the murder of Rhoda Nathan, is granted a new trial. The Cincinnati Inquirer, who told Elwood Jones's story for the fourth season of their podcast, Accused, is in the courtroom when Judge Wendy Cross renders her decision. It is clear that the failure to disclose the existence of relevant, exculpatory, and impeaching evidence prior to trial deprived Elwood Jones of a fair trial. The Sixth Amendment requires a new trial 
as the only appropriate remedy. Accordingly, Elwood Jones's motion for a new trial is hereby granted. Judge Cross calls out the prosecutors from Elwood Jones' original trial. One of the prosecutors just happens to be Mark Peetmeyer. By the way, in January of 2023, Joe Dieters, the elected Hamilton County prosecutor, leaves the office. Why? Because he's appointed by Governor Mike DeWine to be the 163rd Justice of the Ohio Supreme Court. When I speak to Keith about all this, he says he's not surprised by any of it. Human beings without accountability, people do things when they when when they are not being watched. You know what I mean? Uh, um, when they are not being held accountable, that they wouldn't do if there was consequences to it. You have been uh, uh, given the power to sentence people to death. I mean, to take people off the planet through a legal, sanctioned process. And you don't have to be correct. You don't have to be upstanding. Your, your, your practices don't have to be legit. However, you can get this person to this journey. But this system is not about justice. That's a misnomer. It's not have anything to do with justice. Next time on The Real Killer. Do you know Keith Lamar? I know him. Did you see him inside L6? No, I didn't see I speak with two men who had two very different vantage points during the uprising. Did you ever see Keith as part of that group? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. He was there? Yes. To learn more about Jeffrey Wogenstall's case, or if you have any information about the murder of Amber Garrett, please go to our episode page for a link to his website and the phone number for the Office of the Ohio Public Defender. The Real Killer is a production of AYR Media and iHeartRadio, hosted by me, Leah Rothman. Executive producers Leah Rothman and Elisa Rosen for AYR Media. Written by Leah Rothman. Executive producer, Paulina Williams. Senior associate producer, Jill Pashesnik. Coordinator, George Fom. Editing and sound design by Cameron Taggy. Mixed and mastered by Cameron Taggy. Audio engineering by Matt Jacobson. Studio engineering by Anna Mulishan. Legal counsel for AYR Media, Gianni Douglas. Executive producer for iHeartRadio, Maya Howard. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. 
Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.